Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, service, and the inner life. Join us now for part two of a four-part conversation with Brother David Stendelrast and Michael Lerner as they explore Brother David Stendelrast's spiritual biography. Brother David, welcome back to our conversation. Thank you. In our first conversation, we went from your birth uh, in 1926 as Franz Kunau uh, to uh, the end of the war, close to the end of the war. Uh, and before we go on to the next part of your life, um, there's one question that, um, that I have to ask because some listeners would want to know, um, and I'm curious myself. Um, I wonder whether, to what degree you were aware of what was happening to the Jews. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I ask this, um, I am not somebody who judges people's evolution. You know, Carl Jung, uh, many people born in that period of time, uh, we just have to remember the historical context. Uh, and you've spoken of how proud you were to be Austrian. Of course, you were deeply involved with the Catholic Church. Um, but actually, in the United States even, it took a long time for consciousness of the Holocaust to be really understood, um, a very long time. And uh, there was tremendous anti-Semitism in the United States um, uh, during that period. And of course, uh, uh, at least the the historical view is that Austria was a quite anti-Semitic country. Um, the church itself did not necessarily distinguish itself. So I was curious in a completely non-judgmental way about the evolution of your awareness and understanding of the uh, uh, predicament and ultimately the catastrophe of the Jewish community. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I think we will have to distinguish there between the awareness at the time mm-hmm. and my awareness in retrospect. Of course. Um, it, it's an, I'm still becoming more aware of what actually happened then mm-hmm. and uh, learning, learning about it. It was extremely complex. Uh, so I, <clears throat> let me try to remember some things uh, that are relevant. <clears throat> First of all, I should, should probably say that according to the Nuremberg laws, I was quarter Jewish. My mother was half Jewish. I didn't know that. Yeah, my mother was half Jewish. My grandmother, who stayed here, was considered fully Jewish. Uh, And her mother, uh, whom I also still very well knew, uh, was the the last of the family who was with her before she died. That evening that she died, I was with her. Uh, she was uh, completely Jewish, and even my great-grandmother was already Catholic. So even though they were Catholic, they were considered to be Jewish. I, I don't remember why this was so, but anyway, they were, uh, by religion they were Catholic, ethnically they were Jewish. So since I'm matrilinearly Jewish, I, I, I'm Jewish ethnically. Uh, <clears throat> my mother looked not Jewish at all, neither did my grandmother. Uh, my great-grandmother did. And uh, so the, the Nazis always thought that my mother was uh, the Aryan part and my father was, was Jewish. And they would say that and my mother would say anything against it. Uh, but we were <laughs> endangered over there uh-huh. from, that, from that point of view too. Now, let me go back before, and then my grandmother's sister, who was my favorite aunt, and I knew her so well because uh, when our house in the country was being built, somebody had to supervise the, the work there, and uh, my parents were busy in the city, so my, this great aunt of mine and I lived out there for quite a while uh, together and, and came to know her very well and love her. Otherwise, she lived in Berlin, so that was far. And uh, she died in Auschwitz. Uh-huh. Uh, my mother still went there during the war, 
when the bombs were falling left and right, and it was very dangerous to go by train from Vienna to Berlin, went to visit her, but there was nothing we could do for her, absolutely nothing. And we didn't even know exactly where and when she died, but my, my brother found out later on that she died in um, Auschwitz. And her name, she was also uh, Christian, she was Protestant. Uh, her name was Hedwig, and uh, St. Hedwig was a Polish princess, and she died very near where, uh, Auschwitz, very near where St. Hedwig lived and died. On the feast of Saint Hedwig, she died. Uh, we could find out later on. And were you aware that you were partially uh, we, Jewish? We knew nothing about that. We found that, that out uh, 10, 20 years ago or something uh -huh. like that, much, much later. Uh -huh. But I should go back before, uh, before Hitler even came. And, uh, and <coughs> the, there was anti-Semitism in Austria, and, and even as children, we didn't know it as anti-Semitism, of course, we, we just knew the Jews. The Jews were those people who would come in when you were in a restaurant and, as a group and be very loud and, and unpleasant. Mm -hmm. Uh, that that really happened many times, and I remember that yes. kind of type. Just like later on, we would have this opposition against the Germans that mm -hmm. came in, and they would talk with German and Prussian accent. And even after the war, I remember at a students' meeting, uh, a, a, a student, young co-ed started speaking with a Prussian accent. And before I heard what she was saying, I felt my hair standing up on my back like a cat when she sees a dog, you know? This is ingrained in us. So this was against the Germans. The other one was against the Jews. And, and they had just this reputation and they behaved that way. And my Jewish relatives would talk about the Jews. They were themselves Jews, but there was something like a Jew. Don't behave like a Jew. Mm -hmm. And so that was one thing. Culturally, there was something that rubbed against. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe I'm now exaggerating it, but it was, for a little child, it was noticeable. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the other thing, which at the time I didn't know, but now I'm aware of, is of course that the Jews were the wealthier people and also the ones that controlled the flow of money. So the landlords and so on. So anybody who owed money was usually owing it to a Jew. Now, that doesn't make a particular race uh, beloved. And, and it, it kind of, it built up. Uh, so there was this, definitely was this anti-Semitism that Hitler, Hitler built on it. Um, I remember uh, when after Hitler came, talking about Jews and, and that they were the enemies of the people and all that. So we didn't believe that. I remember my family, everybody crying when Hitler came. And so then my Jewish relatives taking off. Uh, one of my uncles went on the Siberian Railroad all the way to uh, forgot Shanghai. He me I remember him mentioning, and then eventually. But did you know why they were leaving? Because you didn't know at that time that you were partially. Uh, because Jewish. they didn't like Hitler, they were afraid of Hitler. That's right. that's as much that's what as we knew. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and we knew that we were we had Jewish ancestors, and that, oh, you did know. Oh yeah, we knew that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. So that you knew from childhood. Yeah, we, we uh -huh. and then when Hitler came, we would all have to draw our uh, family tree. And so there were, of course, the Jewish grandparents in there. And I remember us saying to my mother, I can't at this moment remember why, but we'd say, we are more uh, proud of this part, part of our ancestry, <laughs> we'd say. Maybe to please her or whatever, but... Uh, also, they were doctors and... and, uh, and uh, but then why weren't you... Uh, I'm, I'm just confused. If you knew this, 
and you were drawing the family trees because the Nazis required it, and there were Jews on the family tree, why weren't you considered Jewish by the Nazis? We were considered quite a Jewish. And you were we, considered yeah. Jewish. And, and so we had to be very, very careful. Uh, I have a... a found were quarter that, Jews sent to concentration camps? No. So it was only if you were half Jewish? Half Jews were sometimes sent. I see. So in, in Austria, the dividing line was either full Jew or sometimes half Jewish, but quarter Jewish you weren't sent. No. But we were but looked were, at the scans, right, so when right, we didn't right. tell anybody. Okay. Didn't tell anybody. Okay, thank I you. think that probably even our friends didn't know it. We right. just wouldn't talk about it. Right. And my mother didn't look Jewish, so and then she had three boys, and so uh, that protected her. And at one time she was sick at, uh, at home, she told us, and one of these Nazi... Uh, spies came in and uh, she was in bed uh, alone at home and he, he came, police, uh, and asked with whom we associated, asked the boys who were the friends of your boys. And she was prepared for that because we had friends whose parents were Nazis and the boys were fine. And mm -hmm. Often the people were fine too. They were just happened to be in the party. That was also a very sort of not so clear cut black and white. Uh, and so she would say the right names. Mm -hmm. And then this man said to her, you know, it's really a shame uh, when you have a fine horse and you breed it with a donkey. Mm -hmm. uh, me thinking that she was the fine horse and my father was the donkey. And my mother said, if I hadn't been sick in bed, I would have <laughs> choked him to death. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so it was very, uh, very unpleasant. And, and we knew that my, uh, my great aunt was in danger, but there was nothing we could do about it. Uh, and then after the war, uh, this is another slant on it. First of all, uh, I came to know people, a couple, who had Jews who had come to this country in one of those ships and they didn't let them in. Yeah. So I knew them well and uh, they eventually came to this country. So that, that was also, and then recently, only recently I met a sociologist in Austria who is, or Switzerland, I can't remember now, who is specially studying this question of the Jews in the United States. Right. As a, dissertation or something. And she pointed out to me, which I had never thought about, that there was first the series on roots. And, uh, the, and that was uh, seen by millions of people and made a, a very great impact and had no great follow-up. And then uh, there was this, a series very comparable to it, maybe by the same interview, I'm not sure, on the Holocaust. And that was picked up and very much developed. And she says that is what the Americans needed after Roots because they couldn't face their guilt with regard to the black people. And with regard to the Jews, uh, they had a good record because they had uh, uh, fought against Hitler and so forth. And so that was picked up. Mm -hmm. It was kind of a substitute to what we should have done with roots. Mm -hmm. We did now with, with Holocaust. It's an interesting approach. That's why I say I'm now learning things looking back. That, that, that As, we all are. As we all yeah. are. As we all are. You asked uh, earlier, how much did people know? That is a very important question. And I had been asked that many times. And... Uh, and my answer was always, nobody knew everything, but everybody knew enough to be guilty. And then I add, just he like here now. Mm -hmm. Because we also know uh, we could uh, later on, the next generation could blame us for things that we know and didn't prevent. And it was just like that. And it is uh, only in this perspective, in this setting, can you appreciate how callous people are. 
or I th callous is of course a negative word, how um, detached in order to um, keep alive and keep the humor. We had jokes, it is uh, not particularly uh, uh, diplomatic to even talk about it now, but we had jokes at the time that the Jews and our Jewish relatives told one another, and they said, goodbye, see you on, in the soap dish. Mm -hmm. So one knew that they were making soap out of the Jews, out of the bodies of the Jews. And when we were making jokes, during that time we were making jokes, we said, see you on the, in the soap dish. They would say. So do you remember the mass roundups of the Jews? No. Okay. But I remember going with the class, whether we were actually taken there to see it, I suspect not. I think we were taken just on our regular walk mm -hmm. and saw it, but I can't swear to it, that uh, the Kristallnacht, uh -huh. all the stores in Vienna, all the Jewish stores were just... Uh, shattered, all the, the, the windows and everything shattered. I remember that very vividly. But and again, you know, it, it didn't sink in. It didn't. It I wasn't understand. at all like yeah. when when you think back on this now, a terrible, uh, the terrible thing it was. Not that we thought that was good, certain, mm -hmm. nothing of the sort at all, but just like you see now accidents, and you say, that's terrible, uh, and you feel really with the people who had this accident, but that you were guilty, of, that you should have prevented it, uh, should have, well, we were children, but uh, that wasn't, mm -hmm. it, it was just a fact. Mm -hmm. Thank you what very they much did. Thank you. So I'd like to move on now uh, from the war, in that whole period, uh, to the post-war period where uh, uh, Vienna was slowly coming back to life, uh, and you, your, your brothers went to the United States with your mother, but you stayed to uh, complete a doctorate. In, yeah. uh, you had been interested in art, as you described. I also studied art first. And studied art first. Yeah and then moved on into anthropology and psychology. Could you tell us a little about, oh, actually, before I ask you that question, because there's one other piece, there's a very remarkable photograph of you. I don't have a date on it, but you're in the mountains, and you're surrounded by sheep. Yeah. And I must say, you look Christ-like. <laughs> you look Christ-like. And I just wondered, what is the story of that photograph? Yeah, yeah. That was one of my when happiest was it taken? times. Yeah. Uh, it must have been uh, the summer of '46, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it was the. No, it wasn't the first summer. '45 because uh, that was the time when we were with the refugees. Yeah. And then there was very little food. Uh, you mentioned that already. Mm -hmm. um, my brother uh, stole a, a horse from the Russians, which the Russians, of course, had stolen from somebody else. And, uh, and then he thought he would have a riding horse in the future, but uh, you ended up eating it. Ended up I eating that. it, yeah. And then uh, it, it, we sorted it. We had these big bells with sorted horse meat. And then it, it got wormy, and my mother threw it out. And we kept saying over and over to her, this, the worms, they were just horse meat uh, turned into worms. What difference does it make? We would have eaten it. Now we are starving. <laughs> she had two volumes of Webster's Dictionary uh, on, on the bookshelf, and somebody had offered us uh, uh, two pounds of lard for this earlier on. And uh, I remember we would always look up to this dictionary, and my mother didn't give it away. Uh, it was, she had it in college, and so, so we, uh, we would always look up to that when we were really hungry and say, look at these books up there. We could have lard now. <laughs> We would have long eaten it up, but I mean, we were really, really hungry. Yeah. So, uh, but after that, 
after the war, as I said, we were in this in this officer's mess, so right. we had very much to eat. And at the end of each meal, we would so start laughing and laughing, and, and the, the, everything was coming out of our noses. Uh, and we, at first, we couldn't figure out why we were always laughing at the end of the meal. And then we remembered that was exactly the time when we always had a fight after the, at the end of the meal. Uh, subconsciously, there wasn't enough food, so we started fighting with one another, arguments. And at that time, there was enough, so somehow, subconsciously, we had all this fun, and we were laughing all the time. And after that, there was not much to eat, but there was enough uh, to get by. And when my mother left, and then we got care packages and things like that. And uh, we had a nanny when we were very small children, I think she came when I was two and a half or something like that. And when I was uh, going to university, she was still with us and taking care of us. Really? So when my mother went to, to America, she lived with us. And uh, we lived very, uh, very simply. We had just two rooms and a bathroom and a kitchen. And she lived in one room where my mother had lived. and. Um, the boys had lived in the other room, and now my cousin was living with us, and friends were living with us. So we, we always had a lively uh, home there. And uh, <clears throat> in order to get into the academy, and then also into the university, you had to uh, shovel uh, the debris, because it was all bombed out. So you had to show how many hours you had shoveled debris, and then you could Im immatriculate. Uh, and we had these little books. I don't have, have that anymore. I saved a couple of other things. And among them, uh, a report card from, I think, 43 or 44, uh, which it says, uh, <laughs> it says, in sports willing. <laughs> <laughs> in in uh, scientific um, uh, topics, gifted, I think it says, and a more positive attitude to the nationalist, uh, to the national socialist school would be desirable. <laughs> and that was very dangerous right, at that I time. Understand. I think that is why my mother kept it. She was very proud of it. <laughs> Again, before we get into the academy, um, uh, my memory, if it serves me right, is that it was before the end of the war that you found Rilke's Book of Hours. Oh, that? yeah. And that was a treasure for you. You kept it in the barracks, and somehow somebody saved it for yes. you until later? But tell us when you I, found Rilke's book of uh, My mother was reading it, and it was actually, I still have the little book, it was originally dedicated to my mother by a friend. Uh -huh. And then my mother gave it to me, and that was uh, when I was a teenager, and uh, we, I wasn't the only one. Uh, this group of friends uh, from that school, the, the ones that went underground, we would also... Um, uh, send a mimeograph, or I think at that time you had one of those wax things where you mimeograph things, and we would make little booklets and send them to our friends uh, who were in the, on the front. And there were always Rilke poems, and there were poems we ourselves wrote, and, uh, and other German poems, but Rilke was, for us, I, I always said, uh, like rock and roll is for the kids mm -hmm. now. It was what turned us on. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, yes, I took it to the, uh, into the army, that book, and, and I had to leave it behind and, uh, because we, we thought we were coming back to the barracks. And then one of my colleagues, knowing how much it meant to me, brought it long after the war. Yeah. Uh -huh. And I still have it. Yeah. Now, that was also the period of time, at some point in there, uh, you came across a Benedict's rule, isn't that correct? Yes, we read that because we read everything that wasn't, put, uh, wasn't um, 
But the Nazis didn't want us to read, right. like kids do now. What the parents don't want right. to read, you read. So anything religious, they didn't want to read, so we read everything religious. That's why I said it brought us deeper and deeper into that um, spirituality. And you also said uh, somewhere that when you read the, the rule, that uh, St. Benedict's comment on... Uh, a remembering death at all times was a particularly powerful line for you. Yes, uh, actually, uh, that was that is just one of the. Uh, it, it's called uh, the tools of good works, but it is uh, an outline of topics on which uh, the abbot is supposed to talk to the monks, give little talks to the monks. And one of them is to have death at all times before your eyes. And somehow that struck me very much when I was reading it for the first time. And I either wrote into the book or, or made a mental note, but I think I wrote in the book, I will have to read this many more times. Mm. Uh, and then the war was over and I was so happy I had life ahead of me and I was with a girlfriend and with music we were in Salzburg at the time and it was vacation time and just absolutely heaven and then I remembered this uh, having death at all times before your eyes and that it became clear to me that this is how we had lived death at all times before our eyes obviously and that's what and I saw clearly that this is why we were so happy, because we had to live in the moment. And when you live in the moment, you are joyful. And that clicked, and so I thought, well, uh, from here on it would be all downhill unless I continue living in the present moment or having death at all times before my eyes. And the, the only connection I knew was the rule of St. Benedict, so I thought, I should probably become a monk. And not just probably, I felt that very clearly. Uh, but I didn't like the idea at all. And so I was finding all sorts of alibis, and that's why I, I had already started, started studying art, and I continued that. But that was difficult because I had start, started before I was um, um, inducted into the army, and we were a little group. I had been brought there by a friend of mine uh, who was already part of that group. We were a little group with a professor who was absolutely opposed against the Nazis. And everybody knew it. And uh, the, uh, we were called that. Uh, uh, they referred to us as that. Um, rebellious nest or something like that. It was dangerous, actually, for the professor. So in order to protect us and himself, he was a member of the party. You just subscribed and you wore this swastika. Uh, but everybody knew he, he was really against it. And he also, uh, it was a small group and very spiritual and it was just really beautiful. And then, after the war, when I came back and wanted to go back to him, he had been branded as the big Nazi, but the others who were the real Nazis, and uh, that broke his heart, and he um, resigned from the academy, and then I couldn't find any teacher anymore because the, the others that were there, I just didn't like them. And so I switched over to restoring rather than painting. And I found a, a, we had a very good professor for restor restoring, and this was the only big place where restorations were done at the time in all of Austria. So we got the most interesting works uh, under our hands. We were, we, and there was, were only a, a dozen students or less, and we actually worked with, under the guidance of the professor. We worked on a Dürer, for instance, uh, that was then a Dura Madonna that was then traded in for a whole museum to Czechoslovakia. And they got a, a museum back uh, of, a German, of an Austrian poet. Um, and we, we, uh, Kranach and uh, Van Dyck was discovered. In, 
people were always coming uh, between uh, 12 and 1 uh, and bringing their treasures and the professor would tell them, give them his expert opinion free and uh, usually it wasn't worth anything. But one time somebody brought folded up a canvas, folded up and <laughs> Uh, and the professor saw right away and said, that looks very interesting, we'll work on that, but he couldn't tell much. He could barely tell it was a portrait, it was all uh, grayish. And then we worked for many months and it was an, until then unknown Van Dyck that was mm. being discovered there. So. You're listening to a conversation with Brother David Stendelrast and host Michael Lerner. It was really very interesting work that we did. But, uh, and, when I, and at that time I became interested in primitive art and in, in children's art. Uh, there was a Professor Zizek uh, who was one of the painters of the secession together with Schiele and Clinton. And uh, he was not so famous. And he, when he painted, his uh, landlord's children were, uh, were bothering him, so he rolled out big rolls of brown paper and let the children paint with his paints. And this was the first time in history, that, or the history of education, that people discovered that children were so creative because for, formerly they always had to copy things. Uh, and this was the first time. So he started this school and it became really very famous in Vienna. And... Uh, or oh, I should say it became famous in the, in the rest of the world. In Vienna, hardly anybody knew about him. Uh, people would come from Australia and ask a policeman for Professor Zizek. <laughs> of course, they couldn't find him. But he revamped the art education in the whole world. And I got to know him at the end of his life. And he was also one of those hungry people. And my mother sent him some food from the officer's mess. That's how I came to know him. And uh, I was so impressed by the children's creativity and all that. And that's why I then studied psychology. Then I started studying psychology. I had again to shovel debris for the university and matriculate there. And then I got my PhD in psychology. Now, your PhD in psychology was experimental psychology. You were very much interested in rats and, you know, behavior and all those things. But at the same time, you were living in Vienna, which is at the heart of, of some of the most profound uh, traditions of Western culture. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Carl Jung was in Switzerland, Sigmund Freud was in Vienna, uh, Rudolf Steiner was uh, doing the anthroposophical work. There were the traditionalists like Fritjof Schoen and, and so on in the traditionalist tradition. And so what I'm curious about, because you were living from the point of view of us uh, paleo-Neanderthals or whatever in the United States, culturally, we have such a low level of culture in comparison with yeah. Central Europe from my point of view. What, uh, what were the cultural influences that were, uh, you've mentioned Klimt and Scheele and so forth, but who were the people who, looking back on it, or the influences that were shaping you during that period of your years in Vienna? Certainly not these uh, uh, people like Freud or yeah. Adler or Jung. We uh, <coughs> were, as I say, strictly experimental and uh, I'm still ashamed to say, but um, uh, Viktor Frankl was lecturing in Vienna at the time, and I never in my whole life met him or heard him. We weren't going there. We know, I knew Frankl was lecturing over there, not at the Psychological Institute, but at the Medical Institute. Uh, we wouldn't admit him over here, and uh, and I wasn't. I had not discovered the connection between psychology and spirituality. I uh -huh. just hadn't discovered that. Mm -hmm. that, that was. Psychology yet, was how the brain works. And yet there was a part of you that was saying, perhaps I have to become a monk, but I'm running away from it. 
Yes, but uh, all we were very spiritual, but yeah. we hadn't connected this part of life, the with psychology, psychology, with spirituality. Oh, yeah. I remember uh, sitting in a cafe uh, in Vienna and reading, um, I had heard a lecture by Professor Koppers, who was uh, a psych um, anthropologist who, who became a member of the Fire uh, Fuego, uh, mm -hmm. Terra de Fuego Indian mm -hmm. tribes um, before they died out. And uh, I heard a lecture by him and I was very moved. And then I borrowed books that he had recommended and I was reading um, The Origin of the Idea of God by Schmidt. And I remember sitting there and the tears were just dropping down. I was so moved. Uh, so those were discoveries that anthropology had to do something with spirituality. Mm -hmm. I was just gradually making my way into it. Uh, but it wasn't all packaged. Originally it was just uh, religion. Um, nowadays I find it difficult to even say that because I can't separate it. Right. I've been wondering what was it if it wasn't the whole thing. But it was very compartmentalized, but very strong. So in 1953, you came to New York? Yes. Um, and someone, I think you said, or someone said about you, that it was a race between finding the right girl or the right monastery. I, I always <laughs> said that. Um, <coughs> because I didn't think that the monster had any chance. That was my, my way out. There were so many girls and so many few monasteries. And, in America, I, I didn't even know there were monasteries in America. And also but, you had and, some vague hope of becoming rich, I think, at that point. Well, yeah. when one goes to America. But I came only really because my family was there. Yeah. I, I felt very strong roots in Europe. And uh, what you see from American culture abroad is not particularly attractive. No, I understand. And so uh, it was not... Uh, so it was a, a reluctant decision in many respects? Yeah, it has helped me understand why the Arab countries, many of the Arab countries, the people yeah. are so against this American culture. Yes. They are not against American people, they are not against uh, Christianity. Uh, Muslims, if they are religious Muslims, they can't really be against Christianity. They are against this cultural yeah. image. And that cultural image was is unfa very unfavorable abroad, and it I, that's was I saw. My brothers loved it, and, and they wanted it, and they came over here. I didn't like it at all, so I came very reluctantly. And then I told a friend here, uh, if I had lived in the Middle Ages, I would have become. This was another way out, and now I can't. But if in the Middle Ages I would have become a Benedictine monk, because now they have all these. Uh, additions to what I want the rule, pure and, and simple, because that's what I had read. And he said, well, I heard that they have just started a monastery where this is what they want to do. They want to live according to the rule of St. Benedict, pure and simple. Uh, it's somewhere near Elmira, New York. So when I heard Elmira, it was like a deja vu. And I thought, gee, I have to check that out. And then I called and I asked, uh, do you have buses that go there overnight? Uh, because uh, th I thought then I wouldn't have to stay overnight anywhere. I just check it out. Yeah, they had a bus. I went up there, arrived I think at six o'clock in the morning, and didn't know where the monastery was. Didn't have any address or anything. I went totally in the wrong direction. Hitchhiked, and suddenly found myself in Pennsylvania. So I knew that was wrong. <laughs> hitchhiked back. It took me six hours. At uh, noon, I arrived there, uh, and I f had to walk a long ways, take a bus a uh, still a ways, and then uh, walk. And, and it was just a farmhouse. And then uh, immediately, uh, at that time, you still fasted to go to uh, communion. So I was fasting all this time, hoping that I could go to mass there and communion. I got communion, then I got lunch, and then they put me to work on the 
in the field and, and they were apparently squash. And I asked this uh, monk with whom I w was working, was an older one, one of the founders, there were three who founded it, and I said, uh, do you uh, really want to follow the rule of St. Benedict strictly without any additions? He said, yes, knows all I need to know. Then I said, do you have lay brothers? Because I didn't like this idea that they had lay brothers. No, we are all the same, lay and priest is all one. Okay, that was good. That was all I needed to know. Then I, there were other young people there. I asked them, they were leaving the next morning. I asked if I could have a ride back to New York. Yes. Hitchhiked back to New York. In the morning, they, would, uh, they were already giving out the work at that time. And uh, they had already an assignment for me. And they said, no, sorry, I'm leaving. <laughs> And I went right back. It was there less than 24 hours, and I knew this was the place. And when I came home, my mother was already in tears because when I came in, because I had said, if I don't like it at all, I come right back, and if I like it very much, I come also right back, and if I don't know, then I stay longer. So I came right back, and I was beaming, so she knew I liked it, and she was sorry about that. <laughs> like, like, a typical mother, she asked me, did you leave them some money? Yeah, how much did you leave them? I told her how much left. Why did you leave them so much? <laughs> I said, because I'm going to join them. It's all coming back. <laughs> I was absolutely sure this was it. And then I, so I, why I, was your mother so sad? Well, a mother doesn't like a son to go to the monastery. Eventually, she really liked it, and she even became uh, an oblate, which is kind of a third-order member of the community, and she's buried there, and my, my grandmother is also buried there. So they came every Easter, and uh, she... So there she, wasn't any part of her that wanted you to become a monk? No. What did she want you to become? I don't know. She, she didn't push us anywhere at all. But I do remember that when we, as kids, we would pass the university, and then uh, she would say, well, when you have finished gymnasium, then you'll go here, this is the university, and then eventually you will write a book. said that we were kids. Uh, and that sank in. But it was more a projection, a dream, rather than pushing us in any direction. She always said, you can learn anything you want as long as you stick with it. And I told you I, I was not sporty at all. And then uh, I saw this fencing school and you could look in through the windows and you saw these young people fencing. And so I said, I'd really like to learn fencing. So my mother said, okay, learn fencing. She had to give uh, lessons in English to earn the money to send me there. Uh, uh, but I could go and I went for two years. And learned. Even when I came to New York, I still went to the uh, athletic, New York Athletic Club and a French foil. <laughs> Did a little of that. So she really supported us in anything we wanted to do, but she didn't push us at all. And becoming a monk, she didn't like that. She wanted the grandchildren. She got plenty of grandchildren. So many I can't even remember their names, but my brothers took care of that. <laughs> so there's a five-year period from 1953 when you joined uh, Mount Savior Monastery to 1958 when your superior, your abbot, sent you to Cornell for mm -hmm. postdoctorate studies. Was that period a period when you were sort of fully engaged in being a monk or were, were you also going out for other no. things? I, I didn't even go uh, to the village for, for any, anything except to the dentist. And I remember others would like to go once in a while and go to the village. I never wanted, I was just absolutely happy, happy there. And one whole year I was uh, house cleaner, this changed, and I remember that was the happiest time in my life, just sleeping, sleeping, sleeping. So what happened to your spiritual life in those five years? 
I found my home, I guess that's how you would say it. I was just perfectly at home. Because I later on saw how Zen monks, they practice so very methodically and all that. And with Benedictine monks, well, we had our classes and so forth, but in comparison, it's nothing at all. But the attention to whatever you're doing, and when the bell rings, and we had all these bells many, many times a day, uh, you drop whatever you're doing and you go to the next thing. Uh, that is this attentiveness, that living in the present moment, that that was really cultivated. Uh, and, and I learned that at the time, and it, it made me so happy. And those were the happiest uh, years in some respects in my own life. Speaking of the bells ringing and, and uh, going from one thing to another, one of your most beautiful books is this book called Music of Silence, A Sacred Journey Through the Hours of the Day. Could you simply describe briefly for viewers who aren't familiar with this, uh, what the hours of the day mean to a Benedictine monk? Well, I actually, um, we meet in church to pray. We meet around the altar. Our church was a, a round church, and, and the altar is in the middle. So we stand around the altar, and we chant. And my uh, recollection of these years that we were just talking about is that we are standing around the altar chanting and then now and then we go out and eat and now and then we go out and do something in the garden but mostly we are standing around the altar and chanting that that was the heart of the and these are gregorian chants those were at the time now they are altered because we are singing in English, so they are, the melodies don't quite fit. But at that time, it was all Gregorian chant, and when I'm alone in the hermitage, so I still sing all these wonderful old melodies. And that uh, was seven times a day and once during the night, so short times. But we were always singing and then quickly doing something else and again singing. That, that was the idea. You know, this book is uh, of, you know, I, I only sort of totally familiarized myself with six or so of your books, but, uh, but this one was a very powerful um, experience for me. Um, it, it gave me an understanding of, of what the hours are. I mean, just uh, starting, you have a note... Uh, Gregorian chant is a vast collection of music made up of about 3,000 chants, and it grew up over many centuries, believed to be derived from Jewish chant. And then Pope Gregory, from 590 to 604, asked that it be collected and preserved. And, uh, and so it, uh, in, in the early Middle Ages, Gregorian chant, which was flourishing within the Holy Roman Empire, assumed traditional form. And then in the 19th century, the Benedictine monks of the Abbey of, how do you say that, Solem, Solem in France, embarked, Benedictine monks, embarked on a century-long effort to restore the chant to its medieval traditional form. Uh, so your tradition oh, yeah, and we has had been a, centrally involved in this. We had a, a, a monk from Solem to, to teach us, so we, we really mm -hmm. were in the best tradition there. So... We were just talking about Gregorian chant and uh, the power of Gregorian chant and your sense that in, in the monastery, the primary experience was standing around in the circle doing the chanting. And, uh, and uh, we wondered if, if you would chant for us. Sure. <clears throat> Maybe I, <clears throat> fortunately, for chanting, it's not important that you have a good voice. You just chant. <laughs> That's what <laughs> distinguishes it from other music. Um, maybe I'll chant uh, one of the uh, antiphons that we sing at the very end of the day. Uh, and it is, um, it's a, an antiphon of the Blessed, Mary, Blessed Virgin Mary, but it's really uh, sort of, and trusting yourself 
to the motherly care of God. That is, is, is the sentiment. It's the God as mother that tucks you in at night, this sort of thing. <clears throat> Salve Regina, Mater Misericordiae, Vita Dulcedo, et spes nostra salve. At te clamamus exules filiheve, at te suspiramus gementes et flentes in hac lacrimarum valle. Ea ergo, advocata nostra, illos tuos misericordes oculos, at nos converte. Et Iesum benedictum fructum ventris tui, Nobis post hoc exilium ostendi. O clemens, O pia, O, o dulcis Virgo Maria. That's one of my favorites. The power of silence. So great. You've spent a great deal of your life in silence. Uh, people give me some beautiful music uh, CDs and uh, before that, cassettes and so forth. And sometimes I was, when I lived alone, I was tempted to put on music, and then most of the time I would think, yeah, but listen to that silence. <laughs> That's better than any music. I think that's a perfect point for us to take a break now. Thank you very much. Thank for you. You've been listening to a conversation with Brother David Stendelrast and Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website at the-new-school.org. That's the-new-school.org. Thank you for listening.